I'm Abby Wamba, and you wouldn't believe how many times I've recorded this to just sound natural and calm. This is Why We Laugh. It's a podcast about why we laugh. And on it, I interview scientists and psychologists and humor writers and comedians about what makes them laugh and how they make other people laugh and what laughter's for anyway. And this is definitely the take I'm going to use because I can't do it again. I'm glad you're here, wherever you are. And I really apologize for the desperation in my voice. It's a fun show. I promise. Welcome to another episode of Why We Laugh. Today, I'm talking to comedy legend Bobby Oliver. Bobby has been doing stand-up for over 30 years, which is 60 times as long as me. Uh, She was so generous with her wisdom and experience in this interview. She's amazing. She has um, an Amazon special out called Bobby Oliver's Greatest Hits. You should watch it. Really, 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 you should read her book. If you're interested in doing stand-up, The Tao of Comedy, Embrace the Pause. My copy is so dog-eared and underlined. A friend gave it to me when I was thinking about starting stand-up, and it just felt like the perfect thing to read. I think there's so much comedy out there and writing about comedy that is so shitty and mean and this book is is the opposite of that it's warm and loving and it makes you feel like nice things are possible bobby is also the owner of dow comedy studio in los angeles and the founder and organizer of the laugh riot girl feminist comedy festival the seventh annual laugh riot girl festival is this year and guess what I'm going to perform in it in the same show as Bobby Oliver on June 12th. It's in the international waters of Zoom, and it's the international time zone show. Watch me. Watch me be near Bobby Oliver in little Zoom squares. Okay, we're going to talk to Bobby Oliver about what makes her laugh and how she makes other people laugh right after these messages from our sponsors, Confidence and Beanbag Chairs. Do you want to try something new without worrying what other people will think? Do you want to really go for something without thinking you're not worthy? Do you want to have any social interactions at all without replaying them afterwards and hating yourself? The answer is confidence. Confidence will have you going through your daily routines same as usual, but without all the concern that you're really a sack of shit and everybody is just about to find out. Having confidence feels like doing stuff and being pretty sure you're not messing up and then not being shocked about that. Unfortunately, confidence is not available anywhere. You have to want it, but not so bad that other people can tell. You can try to procure confidence on two popular paths, getting good at everything you care about or stopping to care about anything. There are other paths to confidence, but they involve painful self-reflection and sitting with your feelings, and you don't want to do that, do you? Confidence. Another thing you can feel bad about not having. Hey, Joel, is your chair okay? It doesn't look so good, man. Maybe you should get that thing checked out. Maybe it's something I ate. No, man. It's totally fine, aren't you, buddy? It's a beanbag chair. A beanbag chair is a garbage bag full of beans you can leave in your living room to sit on. Well, why would you want to do that? (laughs) Great question. Well, they're awful to get out of, but to sit on one, you just kind of have to stop standing and hope it has enough filling to soften your blow to the ground. And once you're down there, if you rich around a lot, sometimes you can find a position to sit in that only feels lumpy in the right places while you play Mario Kart. Wow, that doesn't sound so good. And it looks like my dad when he collapsed trying to run a 5K for lymphoma. But I still kind of want one. Yeah, isn't that wild? Oh, does anybody have some bear? 
Don't call an ambulance. It's too expensive. Beanbag chairs are available way too many places and are the only piece of furniture taking prescription blood thinners. Get one to regret one. Okay, and here's my interview with Bobby Oliver. A friend gave me your book, which I want to show you, actually. I almost sent you a picture. But, like, do you see the amount of dog ears? <laughs> Yay! I loved it so much. Uh, I just am such a big fan. And then I also have watched your amazing Amazon special, which is so fun. Well, um, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate that. That's more than I can say for my family. <laughs> They shouldn't watch it. It's all about it. It's probably good that they haven't watched yeah. it, though, you know? Um, I'm so excited to have you. We're going to start out with the questions that I ask everybody and then get a little more specific to Bobby Oliver. Okay. Sorry, I had to ask my husband something. Yeah, I can't find my chapstick, honey. I had everything. I have a chapstick habit. I understand. I get one of those every year. Honey, just bring me Eddie. God, I swear to God, I just had... You know, the th- fewer things should be round. <laughs> because have you ever put chapstick on a table yep or so and it's like always rolling under the coffee table or rolling under the oh, i swear to god i just oh wait i found it it's it rolled under the keyboard <laughs> i won't bug you for anything else yeah, thank you you guys are cute he's the best though he's so funny we've been together for 32 years and you started comedy 30 years ago? Did you meet before you I started, started comedy? I started in 1988. We went to the same college. We actually met. Well, we had kind of met before because it was a small school. And only like, tw- it was a Christian school. So only like 20 people were cool in the whole <laughs> college. So we had met before, but we really got to know each other when I started a stand-up comedy group at the college and he joined it. Oh, Wow. Yeah, and he was so funny. We'd put on a show, put on shows for the college, and we'd be like, sketch, stand up, sketch, stand up. And so after the first show, I was like, oh, everybody's going to be, you know, this is all about me. And then the next day, everybody was like, oh, yeah, and that Chris Oliver was so funny, too. I'm like, me, me. Oh, my God. So you married him. Yeah, yeah, we we were best. We became friends, and then we became best friends. We met in 1988, uh, and then we got to be best friends. And then we reached the stage where every time we got drunk, we'd make out. And then it just slowly progressed to um, him asking me to marry him when he was on mushrooms. <laughs> so yeah, so you know, it's the typical, <laughs> the typical story. Did you like um, have to remind him? Like, how did that go? Well, actually, when- here's here's the truth. The truth is he got the idea when he was on mushrooms. We'd already been together for years at that point, but he waited for three days to ask me to make sure it wasn't the mushrooms talking. He sounds so responsible. He he is very responsible. Yes. But he's I mean, also he knows just, where the chapstick is. He knows. To he's also days. just, you know, uh, we're completely different people. I'm very like rigid and OCD and everything has to be perfect and in its place. And he's like, well, whatever. You know, which can be great, and it can also be <laughs> infuriating, depending on the subject. By the way, you see Muggles? Oh, yeah, I do. Hey, Muggles. That's one of the three pugs. She looks like she's trying not to fall asleep. Uh, Muggles, I'm pretty interesting, so. Yeah, she just can't hear you. <laughs> <laughs> can you tell me about a time that you remember laughing really hard? Well, I can tell you that, so I had a pretty shitty childhood and there there were a lot of low points but the high points always involved laughter my mama was a very serious kind of mean person you know at at times well you've heard the jokes (laughs) they're all direct quotes so um but she was a telephone operator and she loved the Lily Tomlin telephone operator character. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's hilarious. Do you know Lily Tomlin? I do know Lily Tomlin, but I haven't seen it. She was hilarious. And so my mama laughing, like that was a, a, a nice kind of way we could kind of share this moment of joy together, you know, because she loved Lily Tomlin. And then my daddy and I would sit up every night and watch the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. 
And so that's really how my, my comedy career began because I was just such a huge comedy fan as a child. Uh, and that when I look back on my childhood, those are the moments that I can pick out as being joyful and they always involved comedy in some way. And as, as mean as my family is, they're really funny. Mm. You know, they're really funny. So that I think would stand out for me that just those moments where you got to, you've been in moments where you're like, you're at a funeral and everything is so tense and everybody's so stressed out. And then something happens that makes you laugh. And you just have that moment where you can see that this grief won't be forever. Mm -hmm. You get like a moment of reprieve and that, you know, that is what did it for me. I mean, those are the times that I, I think that, that really stand out. Now, a particular joke on there, I couldn't tell you, really. Mm -mm. Um, But I love David Letterman. David Letterman used to be so funny before he got a TV show, (laughs) you know? Um, And Gary Shanling, I love so much, who was also Buddhist. Mm -mm. Nice. That's my answer. You talked about your dad laughing really hard and your mom laughing really hard, but did you also laugh really hard those times? Yes. Yes, I did. And us laughing together, that was those shared moments where it was just a break from, you know, there were seven of us in a trailer. Mm-hmm. It was just, it was just one long struggle and, and laughter definitely got us through it. Do you remember an early memory of you making someone else laugh? Well, when I was, I was a very serious child. I, I was born 40 years old and I got <laughs> younger every year. How old so are you I, now? Uh, 52. So, oh no, I'm (laughs) zero. (laughs) You're zero. Okay. I'm zero. I I was a very serious child. I had stress induced Tourette's. Um, I used to make, I had tics and I would make noises and I used to carry a puppet around with me everywhere I went. So very popular. (laughs) A lot lot of friends, you know, And, and where I'm from, you, you go like, you basically the same people you went to kindergarten with or who you graduate from high school with. It's a small town, one high school. So I wasn't known as a funny person and I didn't consider myself a funny person until I went into a middle institution in 11th grade. Huh. Middle institution slash, well, I was on the, the, the mental side, but I, it was a teenage wing, but I would also go over for AA meetings to the other side. So it was kind of like a rehab, but I was mostly in the, the mental side uh by the way my best year of high school 11th grade no the middle institution my best best year best high school moments so those people hadn't known me since I was five years old they hadn't had already formed opinions about me and they didn't know I lived in a trailer they didn't know you know that I was poor and I used to make noises and carry a puppet and shit so reinvent myself I got to be a different person and see what, you know, uh, how I was seen by people with fresh eyes. And I found out in the middle institution that I was funny because everyone laughed at my jokes all the time. And they would always say, you're so funny. Oh my God, you're so funny. And so that, that's what helped me realize that, you know, I had been doing theater since I was 14 Um, because my high school had a really good theater department. They made everyone take a theater class. Mm. So I'd been doing theater and taking theater classes every semester since I was 14 years old. But I just, I wanted to be an actress, you know, a serious actress. And then when I found out I was funny, I'm like, whoa, I'm funny, you know, because I'd internalized so much of watching comedy every night with my daddy. Because Johnny Carson used to have a ton of comedians on all the time. Mm-hmm. And so I'd internalized that timing and I figured out what was funny without really consciously being aware of it. So when I got back to high school after that, I decided I was the funny person and I started being funny. And I had friends who refused to eat lunch with me because they would spit out their food the whole time. Um, they were like, if you don't stop this, I'm not going to be able to eat lunch with you anymore. So I, that's when I, you know, started realizing that I was funny. Wow. What did that feel like to change? What was that switch like to go back as the funny kid? I mean, it's not like it gained me more friends because those people had already, you know, pegged me for whatever they thought I was. Um, But it did make my life happier. And my friends thought I was hilarious. So now I was this hilarious, but I wasn't the puppet girl 
you know, um, I wasn't the crazy girl. I mean, I was still crazy, but I was the funny person now. And then that, that helped, but I still, you know, didn't see comedy as a career or anything I could do because every person that I knew who did comedy that wasn't a character like mm-hmm. Lily Tomlin was doing was a man, mm-hmm. like a 35 year old man. So I realized I was funny, but it, what, it was a while until actually until the second time I was in the mental institution hmm. in college um, where I decided I wanted to do comedy. Wow. Okay. So you went back and you're like, this is my funny place. <laughs> right. This, this is where I get all my best material. <laughs> I got to check into a mental institution every two years to get a new act. But also I had seen, you know, I'd seen all these guys every night and then with around that period of time, Brett Butler, do you know who that is? No. She was, she had that TV show called Grace Under Fire. Okay. She was a Southern comedian. She was from Alabama, I believe. She was on the Tonight Show and Roseanne was on the Tonight Show. This was pre-racist Roseanne or pre-we knew she was racist. Roseanne. <laughs> it was in there. Deep, deep. And when I saw those two women on there and one of, and, and, and sounding like me, you know, with the accent and Brett Butler talked about living in New York. And I was like, they let you move from the South to New York. You know, you can do that. So I didn't even know to have that dream for myself until I saw myself in someone else. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think it's so important to be a mentor and to have mentors because everyone needs to see themselves to know to even have that dream. Yeah. Every type of person should do comedy so that every type of person can see themselves in a comedian and know that they can dare to have that dream. I love that so much. And I, and I know that you are actually doing that. You have a festival, Laugh Riot Girl Festival, where you center female comedians and their allies, your rules for your open mics, and Dow Comedy Studio. Can you say what the rules are for doing comedy at your place? Okay, so we have one rule, and that is no pro-violence against women jokes. No rape jokes that are not about rape culture, but are about that bitch had it coming. You know, what'd she expect, you know, kind of thing. And we did that because, I mean, I've been doing comedy for 32 years. I've been in LA since 1997. So I was surrounded by rape jokes all the time. Mm -hmm. And as as someone who'd been raped, it was, you know, it was very hard to hear. But when I opened my own place, suddenly it felt very different to me to have those jokes told in a place that I paid the rent at, Mm -hmm. you know, in a place that I wanted to cultivate this certain, you know, mentality at. So we, I asked people not to do rape jokes. They did them more. They didn't care, you know? And then when we said no rape jokes, then they started making jokes about punching women in the face, you know? So actually it was Chris, my husband, who came up with that rule. Uh, he's not the one that gets death threats over it, though I am. Oh my God. You do? You get death oh, of threats? Of course. Oh God. People are so mad. Because you say there's no violence against women jokes. Right. No pro-violence against women. Like women do mm-hmm. rape, rape jokes all the time, but they're rape culture jokes, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I, you know, I've been sexually assaulted various times in my life, as have many, many, many women, especially women from very vulnerable situations where like, my parents worked all the time and, you know, we just kind of ran around and there was no real kind of supervision or protection. So women write a different kind of joke. So when I asked, you know, them to stop doing it and they wouldn't stop doing it, they did even more. Chris made that rule. And let me tell you something, the assholes self-deported. Mm-hmm. They just stopped coming. Mm-hmm. And and so many, not just women have thanked us for just knowing that they can come there and they don't have to have like their assault thrown in their face over and over. But men, many, many men have thanked us and said, you just changed the whole tone of this open mic. You just made this whole open mic a thousand times better. And and because of those rules and because of, you know, our, and it's not just the Laugh Right Girl Festival, we will not have more than 50% male lineup at any show we do. Um, once we've reached 50% men, we refer men to later dates and we only book women at that point. Men, I will refer you to a later date. 
Yes. Yeah, so, you know, cause it's a, you have to make a conscious effort. Mm-hmm. You have to be like, okay, this, this show has too many men in it or the show. And I also realized by doing that, that I had a blind spot of somebody would post a flyer of all male comedians. And I would be like, there aren't any women in this show, you know, but then people of color would be like, um, Bobby, there also aren't any people of color in this show, you know? And then like LGBT people would be like, they're also all straight Bobby. (laughs) And I was like, oh yeah, I, I had a blind spot to just be so focused on more women, more women, more women that I needed to be nudged on those things. And so that I think diversity is very you know, very important. And so because we did all that stuff, we've won awards because of it. We won LA Weekly's Best of LA, Best Place for Women Comics, which I is- I also saw something that was like best place to do your first set. Yes. Open mic reviews is a, a, a thing that, you know, they list open mics, but every year they have award shows and comedians vote on it. So that was voted on by comedians. Oh, cool. Yeah. So we won Best, uh, best Safe Space Mic and best place to do your first set. Because we run the longest running women only open mic in Los Angeles and we run an LGBT open mic, LGBT plus allies. So, um, you know, we really try to cultivate that. And that LA Weekly award, best place for women comics, they invented for us. (laughs) That award had never been given out before, you know? Ugh, that's so cool. I always see your Zoom mics and I consider staying up until like 2 a.m. Denmark time to, I'm like, someday I'm going to do it. Someday I'm going to do it. Yeah. We have um, someone in, in England who takes my, my class and she stays up till like four in the morning to take the class. That's awesome. And her husband hates me because of it. (laughs) (laughs) Getting more death threats. Uh, yeah the families you're ripping He's apart far away yeah. <laughs> bobby oliver ripping apart families since 1968 can you tell me about the first time you did stand up had you already done stand up when you started your club in college um no i started it because so i'd been doing theater in that terrific program in high school and then because of that I got a scholarship and I was the first person in my family to ever go to college. Wow. And I have a master's degree. I credit that dis- that curriculum decision by my high school that made everybody take a theater class mm. as having saved my life. Wow. So I had not done stand I was a fan of stand up and I had written a play. I was a poet. I, you know, I was a writer um, but and an actor. And then when I went to the middle institution and then I saw Brett Butler, I don't know what the timing of all this was, but, and, and Roseanne and decided I wanted to do it. I called the punchline in Atlanta and asked about their open mics and was told that there were 21 and older. Mm-hmm. So I was like, but I'm 19, <laughs> you know, and I didn't, I didn't have the confidence to be like, can't look, I'm 19, but I'm a comic. Can I just come in and do the set and then leave immediately after or whatever? Who knows if they would have worked worked with me or not um but I didn't want to wait two years to do comedy so I started a stand-up group the thing about my college is it's a small school so it was really easy for you to start an organization there and so all the freaks all the people at the Christian college who smoked pot joined this group so it was like the theater majors, the art majors, the English majors, just different people all came together and we wrote our own sketches. And um, and so that was the first time I'd ever done stand up because I didn't want to wait. But Chris, my husband, had already done it in high school and elementary school. What? Yeah, elementary school, it was just like one of those joke books that you buy. And he like read off, you read joke books that somebody, jokes that somebody else had written. But in college, he did stand up at a talent show. I can't imagine having the confidence to do stand up in front of my high school. Um, but I had never done it before. So that, you know, that night that when I did it, it was just, I knew from that second, you know, that that's what I wanted to do. And then we kept putting on shows the whole time I was there. And even after, I graduated. And then the week I turned 21, I did my first open mic at the punchline. Oh my God. Yeah. And it went great. And so then that was it for me. I was like, this is what I have to do. Wow. I come from a family of factory workers and, you know, like super blue collar. So to even go to college was like, what? But uh-huh. to want to be an artist, as my daddy calls it, the, a theater 
major to be a theater major they were it was just beyond them but yeah that that was it I was hooked wow and you're you're no slouch you were like I want to I want to try stand-up, so I guess I'll make a place for me to try stand-up. And you kind of just kept doing that. Yeah, um, a huge proponent of making your own opportunities. If something doesn't exist, create it. Uh, And once you make that opportunity, reach back for someone. Mm -hmm. You know, reach back for a sister. Reach back for someone. But so everything I've ever, everything that I, people just say, oh, you're you know, you're so giving and you create, no, everything I do is selfish. (laughs) So everything I've ever created, I've created because I had a bad experience with something and I didn't want to be part of that. So I made my, uh, like our, our women only open mic. I started because I got tired of going to open mics with being the only woman there, or maybe only two women there. And you have to sit there and listen to rape jokes all night and just all sorts of misogyny in a lot of these mics. So I created the women only mic because I wanted it. And then I looked around the room one night and in real life, we would get like, like 30 women a night, 30 Hmm. women at the women's mic. And I looked around the room one night and I was like, I've been doing comedy for decades. I've never been in a room full of my peers before. I've never been in a room full of 30 women comics before because there's always one woman in the show mm-hmm. or, you know, one or two women at the mic. Um, my husband's opening a bag of chips. <laughs> I they thought sure. it was a dog. I, I glared at him and he went. um and the festival the reason why i created the laugh right girl festival which is the seventh annual laugh right girl festival coming up um is because i got tired of like there being almost no women in a festival and i went to support a friend of mine in a festival and there were 21 people in the lineup that night and not a single woman in the whole 21 people. And I was at the finals of a festival once um, in Vegas and the meet and greet between the comics and the bookers was at a strip club. Oh, cute. Yeah. Cause you know, all comics are straight men mm. and not just straight men, but straight men who particularly want titties in their face. Yeah. Um, um, so that's when I was like, you know what? I'm just, I'm just going to start a festival because one of the festivals I'd been in who had very little women, I wrote the person afterward and was like, Hey, you know, there are not very many women in, in your festival. And I've heard other people talking about it and you don't want to be known as the festival that doesn't have any women in it. And then he said, Oh, well, not very many women submitted. I said, I know several women who were hilarious and been working for years who you rejected from this festival. And he was like, okay, we'll do better next year. And then the next year came around, they still had like seven women in the, in the whole festival. So those things is what caused me to start Laugh Right Girl. And like you said, it's women focused, but we like to support our allies too. There are so many great feminist male voices also. We also are very open and and welcoming and supportive, encouraging of non-binary comics, trans comics, LGBT comics. Like we want, we want to look and be a place where people feel comfortable and feel welcome. Whereas other places in comedy may have made them feel like they want to quit or that they didn't belong. So we are an intersectional feminist comedy space. The first one in LA. And I don't know if you know what Riot Girl is. Do you know what the Riot Girl movement is? Uh, I know the song. So Riot Girl is a punk rock feminist movement that was started um, in the early 90s by this woman named Kathleen Hanna. It was punk rock feminism. She, there's a, um, a movie about her called The Punk Singer. And there's also a, a book called Girls to the Front because she would stand there and she's like, we're not going to play until all the girls come to the front. Because mosh pits could be very, you know, very dangerous for women because women who would get in the mosh pits, the guys are like, oh, let's show them. We got to make them earn it. And then they would often be more abusive and violent, you know, and rough toward the women in the mosh pit than they even were to each other. So punk shows were mostly male and the women didn't necessarily feel welcome. And so, you know, bands like uh, Bikini Kill, which was Kathleen Hanna and Slater Kinney, which is Carrie Brownstein, 
from uh, Portlandia. She's a riot girl. So it was a feminist movement in the punk rock scene, which I very much relate to. My husband turned me on to it because he's he's a punk. Um, but I very much relate to it because they were women in a predominantly male business. Mm-hmm. And it was the kind of business where there's no HR, you know. So you have to let a lot of things slide in punk rock. You have to let a lot of things slide in comedy. But there's a point where some things you can't let slide. And I, I just very much related to that. They're just so unapologetic, so unapologetically feminist. And so we're Laugh Right Girl. Uh, girl is spelled G-R-R-R-L. Have you seen Amy Poehler's new movie on Netflix called Moxie? I thought of you when I saw it. It has stuff about Riot Girl. Oh, hey, honey. Do you know Amy Poehler has a movie called Moxie that has Riot Girl stuff in it? It's on uh, Netflix now. Yeah, oh, you, cool. guys, you should definitely watch it. Oh, I should definitely see that. Yeah. K- Kathleen Hanna's the one that came up with the line, Smells Like Teen Spirit. Oh, okay. Yeah, she was good friends with Kurt Cobain, and she wrote that on his wall one day. Yeah, so they're they're really badass. That's so cool. Um, okay, when did you start meditating? I started seeing a psychiatrist when I was in third grade because my school man- mandated it. <laughs> they said to my parents, if you, you know, Why don't you look down at this walking cry for help (laughs) that you have standing next to you? So I was in therapy for the, I saw a psychiatrist every week from the time I was in third grade until I was like a sophomore in college. And like I said, in two different mental institutions, I wish at some point at any time someone had said the word meditation to me ever, Uh, but they didn't. But when we graduated from college, we went to LaGrange College. Chris is from Florida, but we met in college. We went to LaGrange College, and then after college, I was like, okay, how do you start a comedy career? And if you were to do that, where would you do it? And so, like, I wasn't about to move to New York because I was super small town. I wasn't about to move to L.A. So Athens, Georgia is the coolest place on earth. It is where UGA is, and it's where we used to go every weekend to get mushrooms. Which makes it the coolest place on earth. On earth. But no, it's really, it's really artsy. Like REM is from there. The B-52s are from there. Just a lot of music. Uh, All the people you think might be on mushrooms. Yes, and they are. Um, So, and, you know, a lot of bands like Butthole Surfers lived there for a while. And, you know, I think Drive-By Truckers lived there for a while. So it was just a super artsy scene. Like every place in Athens had live music, you know, and it was always kind of like, you know, weird punk, you know, cool music. And every place, every coffee gallery would have an art, art displays. And like every month it would change and everybody would go and have wine and cheese and look at the new art. And, and so it was just a super supportive place for the arts. And I was like, okay, I don't know how to start a comedy career, but if there was a place in Georgia to do it, that would be where. So we moved to Athens, Georgia, not knowing what was going to become of it. But very quickly, I got involved with the UGA, stand, University of Georgia stand-up group, which um, produced Kostaki and Kotomopoulos, who's kind of a big deal now. He's really funny and awesome. And so Athens, the the radio station every year played, I mean, every Sunday would play lectures by this Buddhist scholar, this Taoist scholar named Alan Watts. Yeah, I've heard those. Cool. Yes, I have this huge thing, this huge CD collection of his where it flips out and then it flips out again. Like, that's how many. And so, listen, I grew up Southern Baptist. So, obviously, I'm an atheist. (laughs) I went running, screaming (laughs) into the night. Um, so uh, listening to those lectures, like that's, I, I've been a very tortured child. I was kind of religious, really religious for a while. Like I would like take the church bus to church every Sunday by myself without my family. Wow. So you would go alone to church on the bus. Yeah. The, the church bus would come along and pick people up. Uh, and I would go because I was looking for, so I was, so, I was so miserable. I was so upset. You know, I was, I tried to commit suicide many times as a young person and so I was looking for something. So I went to church and then that, but believing in their God was torture. Believing in the vengeful God, but it was so burdensome. 
so I'd become an atheist and I was listening to those Buddhist and Taoist lectures every week on the radio and it became my church. I would tune in every single Sunday and it just transformed my whole way of thinking about, you know, life and the universe and God. And it really saved me. Mm. It really transformed me. And so I started meditating a little bit then. And then the more I read, the more I, you know, he got me to read not only all of his books, but more books on Buddhism and, and Taoism and then I started meditating. And then when I moved to LA, I started, you know, it became more of a regular thing. And then when I realized that I was teaching the Tao of comedy without knowing it, I decided to make it even more purposeful then. But I have to say it's life changing. I mean, it is, I mean, you, I don't know if you meditate, but it is life changing. And I never go on stage without going in a corner and, and meditating and focusing on my breath and lowering my heart rate and bringing myself into the moment. I also think it's great for writer's block. Mm-hmm. And being in the present moment is really the, the best way to write jokes and perform jokes. And so mindfulness is a huge part of my life, just trying to constantly bring myself back to the moment. I love um, what you write in your book about being in the present moment being the best thing for comedy. And I also, I, I was thinking about what a relief it was to read that as sort of like permission to step away from your thoughts because I realized I think about comedy as the ego. Um, It's the voice of what we're thinking about. and It's often judgy. And I wondered what you thought about that as sort of the comedian as ego voice. I have this highlighted. So... Uh, we use the ego as a divider, a go-between that separates us from the experience. And I was like, that's a comedian. And then um, there's a story you tell about Lao Tzu and going for a walk silently with a neighbor. And then one day someone comes along and says, it's a beautiful day. And then they're like, don't ever bring that chatty neighbor again. (laughs) And I was like, the chatty neighbor's the comedian though. Well, that's one way to pursue comedy, you know? Well, you know, my friend David Rosowski says the voice in your head is a liar and an asshole. (laughs) You know, but I compare it to Jerry Springer. I call my voice Jean because that was my mama's name. So it kind of, it took up where she left off, you know? So it's always running, usually criticizing you and not just criticizing you, but, but like the Jerry Springer show, it's always trying to start some shit. Your ego, your ego voice. Yes. Okay. Yes. And it's always looking for the ammunition to use against you. And so some people pursue comedy in such a way that that's one more thing that the voice in their head tortures them with. But what I'm saying is you can put that down and you can pursue comedy as a path to your true self, your authentic voice. Carlos Castaneda calls it, you know, talks about a path with a heart. Uh-huh. You know, the whole world is shouting at you, your job, your relationships, social media, traffic, politics, the whole world is shouting at you, but your true self is whispering to you, but you can't hear it because of all the shouting. So taking breaks from that voice, unthinking, quieting the chatter, you know, so rather than when, when you do that. Rather than writing the same cliche shit everybody else has already written, because these are all human experiences. You're not the first person to internet date. You're not the first person with a crazy family. You're not the first person that, you know, fill in the blank. Every idea you ever had, George Carlin and Richard Pryor already did an hour on. So how do we contribute anything to this existing body of work? And that is by being as true to yourself as possible. Because you may have a twin that looks just like you and slept in the same bed with you every night. That person is not you. It's still not you. Nobody has your exact combination of thoughts and feelings and experiences. So the only way to write stuff that's not cliche, that's not like what everybody else is writing, is to write it from that true self, that authentic voice. And the way to 
get to that authentic voice is to, you know, cut out the middleman. You know, Zen is about having a direct experience with life without the narrator in your head interpreting everything through this filter. Um, and so writing from that point is how you can come up with unique ideas about things that other people have done um, already. You know, in my workshop, once a session, I email everyone an article and we all write jokes about the same article. And it's usually at least halfway through the session. And I'm always amazed at how many different takes there are on the same subject. You know, if you're trying to write from that space, from that quiet. Yeah, I think that my best jokes right now, the ones I like the most, the ones that feel most like me, are they come from that voice that's like never ending stopping, but I pull something out that feels like a real question. And it's like the closer it is, the scarier it is the better I think the joke is and, and the better response it gets. But but it's from the same clackety, 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 clackety thing, I think. I don't know. It's really, it's it's been really interesting to sort of notice because it has a different feeling. It has like a different uh -huh. weight in my hand. Well, it, the more you can take breaks from that voice and insert silence. So if you want something, first pursue nothing. Because something needs a space to move into. Cool. So the more you take breaks from that voice and the more time you can spend in silence, it will inform all of your writing, whether you're doing it at the, that moment or not. I love uh, the recommendation in your book. I write morning pages already. I write three pages in the morning. I have kids. Sometimes it's not in the morning. Sometimes it's whenever the hell I can do it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but then you are like, then meditate. I think you say 15 minutes. I do like five. That's fine. After. And then, and then put things into your world, go for a walk, do something. And that that's when the ideas will come. And I started doing that. I don't know, maybe six weeks ago. And it's a nice format you got there. Well, and also don't look at comedy or meditating. People are like, comedy is this thing I have to add to my life once I start doing comedy. Meditation is this thing I have to add to my life. Rather than looking at it as something that you have to add to your life, think about it as the way you're living your life. So meditation isn't just sitting cross-legged, you know, with your eyes closed. But, but it's also every time you catch yourself thinking, come back. Hmm. Whenever you realize you're multitasking, stop everything but one thing. Mm -hmm. It's just keeping yourself in that, in that mindful state, that present state at all times. So then you're not adding comedy to your life. When you're present, you notice more things, you know, and you notice the subtle nuances of the things rather than your brain going tree, rock, that woman I hate, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So yeah. It, it is just... The more space you insert, the more, I don't know, it, to me, it's just transformational to, to mm -hmm. show up in your life. And then that can be everything, you know, that can be just like looking at your hand, you know, look We're at back your to the mushrooms. Yeah, exactly. People say, oh, looking at your hand is so cool when you're tripping. Looking at your hand is always cool. You just only do it when you're tripping. Mm -hmm. Seriously, Abby, look at your hand. Wiggle your fingers. Look how quickly you didn't even have a thought in your brain that said wiggle fingers. You just wanted it and it started happening. How fucking cool is that? You know, Alan Watts says we've been tricked to, to believing that this moment is not miraculous. Sometimes I break it down very slowly, like open the fridge, take out the milk close the fridge. So it's like breaking it down in those moments and it just becomes trippy. So the more you are present in that thing, whether on your phone or just kind of not paying attention, the more you notice. I feel like when I when I'm in that state, that funny things just glisten, hmm. you know, that they find me. It's not like, oh, what's funny? You're not sitting in a chair going, oh, my God, what's funny? You're just like, oh, well, let me. Oh, shoot. This is fun. You know, and you're just taking all these things that you notice and just making l little notes about them throughout the day. The joke finds you. You don't choose the joke. The joke chooses you. Mm. And it chooses how it wants to be told. 
a lot of people are kind of approaching comedy with like trying to reverse engineer things. Like I've had people say to me, I don't have enough rule of threes in my set or I don't have enough callbacks in my set. I'm like, well, you are really going at this backward. It's not what can I do that's the rule of threes. It's what am I noticing? What matters to me? And what particular device does this idea most organically flow through? Mm -hmm. If that idea fits the rule of threes, great. If it doesn't, don't try to force a device onto an idea because that's where hack comes from. Mm. You know, you have to let the joke choose you and it will choose you when you are in your most relaxed, mindful state. You know, in the book, The Tao of Physics, Frijov Capra says every great problem in science was solved and every great leap in science occurred when the scientists left the lab mm -hmm. or left the chalkboard and went for a walk or took a shower you know, and put space between them and the thing. Because if your your canvas is full, your brain is full, and you're like, like there's no room for those. We all want that aha moment, but we need to make a space for that aha moment to move into. So that's how I see it. And that's how I try to write and try it. Every time I realize I'm not being present, I try to come back. I have this story in the book where, you know, this true story. I taught two classes back to back. In the first class, this guy came in and did a bit about going to the proctologist. And it was every hack joke you think of when you hear the word proctologist. And when it was over, I said, you didn't go to the proctologist, did you? And he goes, no, I just thought it'd be funny. And that same day, this British woman came in and did this huge thing about going to the proctologist. And it was so funny. It was so funny. And when it was over, I said, you just went to the proctologist, didn't you? And she said, yes, last week. So rather than sitting down and trying to think what's funny, show up in your own life. Be present in your own experiences. You know, shut up and watch the movie. And then that's where you get the unique perspectives that, that everybody else has. And the things that actually save you, that transform you. Hack jokes that you don't care about aren't going aren't gonna to transform you. You know, I believe that my job as a comedian is to um, educate, enlighten, and entertain. And so if I'm not doing that, if I'm not in some way healing myself, a lot of my jokes, you don't even realize, you know, what, what they came from. Like, you know, I talked about becoming an atheist. So, you know, that joke about when I say God, my grandma was like, God's going to flash your life in the sky, like a movie picture mm -hmm. for the whole world to see. Well, what that came from is when I was 12 years old, I ran away from home um, because my mama faked a phone call to an adoption agency in front of me. Oh, my God. And told me that they were on their way. And boy, that's where I got my acting skill cut from because she nailed that phone call. I mean, she nailed it. So I ran away from home with my 19-year-old boyfriend. I was 12 because when you grow up like I do, you're 12 and you have a 19-year-old boyfriend. And no one goes, that seems bad <laughs> that's is it too late bobby can i say it yeah it was bad so i ran away from home with him and he he raped me obviously on the streets that night and um the next day uh the police picked us up and my aunt not my grandmother but my aunt said everything that you did last night on judgment day god's gonna flash in the sky mm. And everyone is going to see that like a movie. And I thought God was going to flash my rape up in the sky. Oh, my God. I was 12 years old. I was a Christian. I, I really thought that was going to happen. And it tortured me for so long, Ugh. the fear that that was going to happen. And then one day I wrote a joke about it. <laughs> and I decided that a loving God would not do that. And so not, that's when I became an atheist, when I wrote that joke, and it transformed me. So you don't know that it came from being raped, but it healed me. Yeah. But then I have some overt jokes where I talk about rape, and other people in the audience have come up to me and said, thank you. Mm -hmm. You know, thank you for talking about that. Thank you for using your voice to talk about those issues. I mean, obviously, you have to make them funny because this is the genre we chose. Um, but to me, it's just comedy heals. So it heals you and it heals the audience. Mm. And the more true to yourself you can be and the more honest you can be, the more healing it is.
it's like a tangible way to process the stuff that happens to us. Do you think um, this has been talked about before and it will be talked about again? Do you think a lot of comedians, a lot of comics have hard pasts? Oh, yeah. If you do comedy, your mother definitely did not love you. I've had so many people like I say, but my mama did love me. I'm like, okay. And then they come back in like three weeks and they're like, you know what? I've been thinking about this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, and, and I say that, you know, jokingly, your mama didn't love you. But what I mean is you didn't get something somewhere along the way that you needed. So in some way we are damaged people because most people are not going to put themselves through what you have to go through to get good at comedy. Hmm. You know, most people are not going to go out night after night, rain, sleet, snow, or ice to some like dank basement with a bunch of guys telling rape jokes. Uh, and then you have to walk back to your car by yourself at night. You know, most people are and to eat shit over and over before a joke ever works. Most people aren't going to go through that. Most people would rather just like sit on the couch with their dog and their loved ones and watch TV. But we put ourselves through that because you don't do comedy because you want to. You do it because you have to. So there is something in there that we are trying to fill. So, yeah. And also they did a study. You know how they they come up with studies saying that artists are more mentally ill than other, you know, uh, other occupations or whatever. They did a study. They found that comedians are the most mentally ill. Did we win? Yes, we won. We won most psychotic. Oh, my God. We need a, a sash that says most psychotic. Um, but but part of the way they define psychosis is putting things together that don't go together, mm. you know, and that's a skill for comedians. Yeah. So, yeah. So we are damaged people. Now, that doesn't mean that if you're happy and you've always been happy, you can't do comedy. I'm just saying the industry as a whole tends to attract damaged people. Mm. You hear that, mom? I know you're listening. No, she's not. <laughs> I can't imagine my daddy listening to anything. You know, I, at first I used to be scared about some of the stuff I would say in my act and put out on albums or whatever. And then I realized, oh, my daddy's not a fan of mine. He's not listening. He's not. When I came out with an album called Feminazi Cunt <laughs> and no one ever mentioned it, I was like, okay, they don't even know what's happening in my world. Oh my God. And that, that was named after my stalker. I had an MRA stalker. What's an MRA? Oh my God, girl. I'm about to open your world up. I'm ready. It's called a men's rights advocate. <laughs> you don't even know. You are going to go down a rabbit hole. You're going to, oh my God. Yes. Look, go on Twitter. I don't know if you're on Twitter and put in men's rights advocate. I'm going to be on Twitter. So now you might know them as incels. Yes. I've heard of incels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I had an MRA stalker, an incel. Uh, and he used to call it like 40 times a day. He'd call me a feminazi cunt. <laughs> so I'm, I made it. <laughs> um, it was his pet name for me. So I made an album and I included a long bit. This was a very terrifying situation. I ended up having to go to the police and the FBI. And I got, I was driving around with a hammer in my car. Like it was crazy. Wow. I did. I wrote this long bit about him that I did on my album. I think it's my third album i have five albums i think it's my third one well it's feminazi cunt that's the one it is it's, it's the one called yeah. feminazi cunt yeah Got it. so i wrote a whole thing about it because it was i had to deal with it it was a very terrifying situation that happened so i wrote a bit about it and i named him after him oh he, he must be so flattered yeah i actually went undercover and found out who he was it's all on the the album but yeah i cannot wait that is the next thing i'm listening to for <laughs> sure <laughs> Yeah, my albums are called like Finally, because it took me 20 something years to put out an album. And then my second album was called Women Are Crazy. Have you heard my joke about women? people saying women are crazy? If you've watched the special, you've seen it. They say women are crazy. Yeah, women are the type of crazy that will stalk your Facebook page and drive past your house at three o'clock in the morning and see if anyone else's car is there. But men are the type of crazy that shoot up a school. <laughs> So that Facebook thing just seems quirky now, doesn't it? <laughs> so anyway, that that that's my favorite joke on that album. So I named it Women Are Crazy. And then Feminazi Cunt. And then Rebel Girl. And then uh, 
greatest hits. I just looked at my pages of notes and um, the one, the first one I saw was when uh, you said when you had a really bad set and you were sitting in your car crying about it and then you saw a homeless man and you were like, oh my gosh, <laughs> problems are different for everybody. And then you went out to the homeless man and you said, at least you didn't just have a really bad set. <laughs> <laughs> at least you didn't have a bad set. <laughs> yeah, that really happened. I really was crying my eyes out over having a bad set. And I was in my car and I looked over and there was a homeless man sleeping in a doorway. And I'm crying over having a bad set. I mean, it really is perspective. I mean, but at the time that you have it, it's like the biggest thing in the world mm-hmm. to you. You know, when your comedy is so personal, especially like it's really... And I hope that people get out of jokes, you know, where I mention home homeless people are unhoused neighbors, that the joke is never about them. That is a way that your comedy feels so good to me is that I know that that's never going to be the punchline. Like when we were talking about Chris's joke and I hadn't heard any of his stuff, I was like assuming this must be the same mm-hmm. rules, but I was so tense because I was like, Ugh. But I love that about watching your whole special. Every time I was like, what are we talking about homeless people? I didn't feel like I knew that you weren't going to be punching down or whatever. I believe you use your comedy powers for good. That's cool. You know, I always say a bully wrapped in a rubber chicken is still a bully. (laughs) Chris Rock says, don't pick on people that don't have it coming. Mm. Like it, it infuriates me when people make racist jokes or homophobic jokes or trans, you know, phobic jokes. It's like, do these people not ha- have enough? <laughs> you know, why are we, why are we using our power? You know, like don't go after homeless people, go out after the system that put them there, you know, go after the man, you know, don't go after, I mean, wh- and that's why I like to talk about racism because I, I, my family was so racist, you know, I mean, uh, the N-word was thrown around constantly when I was a kid. And not just in my town or in the trailer park, but in our trailer. Mm. Um, so I like to make fun of racists and racism. And, you know, I'm just a joy to be around. <laughs> I just think it's a delight. <laughs> so much of your, your book is about taking the time to really be present. And you talk a lot about that being on stage. And since I read your book, I have become an overnight expert on how I think people don't give it enough time for a joke to land. I want to have a little Bobby Oliver TED Talk about the pause. Okay, first of all, I am currently recording a second edition of my book on audio. I started recording the book and then I was like, wow, there's a lot of really outdated stuff in here because I say, when you can afford it, you should buy yourself a voice recorder. So yeah, I'm outdating that. So when I talk about the pause, I don't just mean on stage. I mean in life. Um, you know, you if you can't sit on your bed for five minutes and be quiet, how can you do it on stage? And the pause is everything. Comedy is not a monologue. Comedy is a dialogue between you and the audience. You have your part and they have their part. And their part is in the pauses. So we get the joke because we wrote the joke. But to the audience, it's like we're shouting math problems at them. And then we're not giving them time to carry the tune. Our instinct as comedians is, oh, they didn't laugh the second the last syllable was out of my mouth. So I better rush on to the next thing because I don't want to leave any space. But you're not making a place for the audience. The audience needs time to process your Oh. (laughs) you know they need that moment to get it and also it's also understanding how people absorb spoken word so spoken word people absorb things differently orally than they do um, visually so like if you are reading a book you could read it at your own pace you could go back and reread it you know you could look up a word if you needed to but when you have spoken word you have just the one chance So rushing through comedy and treating it like a monologue is not understanding the relationship between you and the audience, which are one organism. And you're not understanding how people absorb spoken word. If you think about like you're at a restaurant and the server comes over and says, the specials are blah, blah, blah. 
And you're like, can you repeat that? And they're like, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, what was the wine again? And you're like a foot from them. And you're really trying. It's hard to absorb spoken word. There's a lot competing for their attention, you know, in the comedy club. even at, And on Zoom, it's even worse. They have their whole house competing for their attention. Mm. So understanding that relationship and taking those moments. The pause is not as important as the joke. The pause is more important than the joke. The pause is like taking a salt shaker full of magic fairy dust and sprinkling it over all of your jokes and making them 10 times funnier. I don't know if you're familiar with the White House Correspondence Dinner Mm -hmm. that they have every year. And then the president always goes up and somebody's written the president jokes and they usually suck. But Obama always nails it. Mm-hmm. MSNBC was interviewing Liz Winstead one day after the Correspondence Center. Do you know who Liz Winstead is? No. She created The Daily Show. Oh, that old thing. A woman created The Daily Show. I think uh, uh, two women. But Liz Winstead is a stand-up comic, just amazing person, comedian. Does a lot of stuff for Planned Parenthood now. So they said, why is Obama funny? You know? And she said, because Obama has mastered something, it takes most comedians years to master, and that is the pause. Think about all the great speakers, you know, uh, Dr. King, JFK, Obama, they keep you hanging on that pause. They're, They're not trying to rush to the next thing. Miles Davis said, it's the space between the notes that count. And that's big in like, like Asian art. You'll see, um, like we, our art fills up the whole thing, you know, where the, the, the thing that's the focus is the, the big middle in Asian art, the background is as important as the forefront. You wouldn't have one without the other. Um, and it also shows confidence on stage. Just, just hold that pause. And it's like Bernie Mac. I ain't afraid of y'all motherfuckers. (laughs) So the pause is everything. That was a really good TED Talk. I have it tattooed on my wrist. Ooh. I have a tattoo on my wrist, too, and I'm going to tell everybody it's me and Bobby Oliver and Bobby Oliver's clone. <laughs> a pug. <laughs> um, and then my last question is, did your puppet have a name? Okay, so the first one was a spider. It was a, And it had a big, I don't know why, a big, like, pink nose but it was a brown spider and his name was herbie herbie the brown spider and then i wore him out after a while and my mama got me this other puppet that was like a a, a, looked like a muppet with a crown and i called him king henry and my mama wrote a note to the school saying that my psychiatrist said i was allowed to bring my puppet to school and i will never forgive her for that oh my god Jean. Jean. No, she passed away years ago. And, you know, like everything, I I understand her so much more now. And I wish I could explain that. You know, I adopted my sister's two kids mm-hmm. many years ago. And when I got in that role, I just understood her so much better. And now that I'm older, I understood her. And I also know that she came from a really abusive childhood and she was bipolar. And so... I understand her a lot more, but I think she would like all those jokes. Hmm. And if she doesn't, she's dead. <laughs> and my daddy does not listen to any of my comedy. So the, they're the perfect audience for jokes about them. Perfect. This has been so great. I wanted to give you a chance if there's just anything else you want to say or make sure people know about. Well, I would love it if you would do our show sometime. I would love to. I know you have to stay up till like 2 a.m. or like I go to bed at 4 a.m. So, um, but if you take a nap during the day, I'd love for you to do our show sometime, our women only open mic and our festival. I'm going to submit for your festival, but I didn't want to do it before this and make it awkward. (laughs) No, it's not awkward. I don't need a video from you either. Yeah. I I know you're not rapey. I'm not rapey. I'm so not rapey. Yeah. So we always have like a hundred comedians and most of them are women. Yeah. But I have to say, even the like the straight dudes who do our festival are just so cool because you know you know assholes are not going to submit to a feminist comedy festival you you built the perfect trap (laughs) i made stuff pink yeah and it scared them away (laughs) i'm so excited about it 
But I guess I would just say to everybody, please watch my Amazon Prime special. It's called Bobby Oliver Greatest Hits. My name is spelled B-O-B-B-I-E. Um, I'm not a boy. I do have four other albums, but that's the best one. Um, and the Laugh Right Girl Festival, everybody can watch it on Zoom. If you follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, on Twitter and Instagram, I'm the Bobby Oliver, B-O-B-B-I-E. And Dow Comedy Studio is spelled T-A-O comedy studio you'll see all the stuff that we do and my i'm working on the second edition of my book kind of bringing us into at least last century if not this century with my technology references um so yeah but just if you want to do comedy do it and if there's not a place to do it start your own open mic uh and since everything is on zoom right now no matter what country you're in no matter what city or state you're in you can do an open mic you know, you can do an open mic in Los Angeles or in New York or Chicago or anywhere. From bed. From bed. Yes, from bed. Although maybe don't. Maybe sit in a chair. <laughs> uh, you know, but you know what? Whatever you need. Um, and just know that if you, comedy doesn't get to decide if you're in it or not. You get to decide that. And so if you see something that it's a bunch of people that don't look like you, that means you're needed so much. You know, there's a saying that goes, God split itself into every possible thing, every person, every tree, every rock, every squirrel, so that God could see itself from every possible point of view. So if you're wondering, does my voice matter at all? You are literally the only person who can report back to the rest of us how things look from your point of view. Your voice matters. Your voice is needed. Your voice is necessary. So use it. That's it. Thanks for listening to Why We Laugh. I'm Abby Wamba. Thank you so, so much to Bobby Oliver. Thanks to Chris Oliver for providing chapstick. Support Dow Comedy Studio. Come to the Laugh Riot Girl Festival. Watch me on Zoom. Read the Dow of Comedy. Listen to the Dow of Comedy. The audiobook's coming out soon. It's going to have updated technology references watch bobby oliver's greatest hits on amazon the music in the intro and outro is poddington bears carefree to careful the music in the confidence ad is scott holmes's corporate ad thanks so much to our sponsors confidence and beanbag chairs get them both